Hello and welcome to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Jesse McDougall. Today we are visiting the country of Venezuela for episode 45 and we have two amazing interviews that'll come right after this. Welcome to the show here on Tracks from Abroad. We are doing episode number 45 today on Venezuela. I am here in the home studio with Zoe. ¿Qué tal, muchachos? Oh, Zoe, I didn't know you spoke Spanish. Sí, yo soy una hablante nativa. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really impressive. Well, regardless, we have a show today with two awesome interviewees. The first one is a U of T student from Venezuela. That's Manuel. The second one is Donald Kingsbury. He is a professor at the University of Toronto, one that I've had before, and we talk about a whole range of subjects since he actually worked in the government of Venezuela under Hugo Chavez. Stay tuned for all that right here on Tracks from Abroad. Tracks from Abroad. Hello and welcome to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Jesse McDougall. I just came fresh from Spanish class uh, over on Victoria College campus. I had a good time. I'm actually really enjoying speaking Spanish. And today we have another opportunity to learn about a Spanish-speaking country. On Tracks from Abroad, we have gone to Brazil and Guyana in the uh, the Southern American continent, but today I'm very happy that we are making a show on Venezuela. Manuel, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Manuel, I wonder, first of all, you're born in Venezuela, but before we get into all that, how did you even find this show? I think I just showed up to the club fair. Uh, okay. I was in a bit of a rush, just running around, trying to see a couple of places. Yeah. And I think I just saw your ad, like a through like some some yeah. through the through the crowds and i was like 
I remember that. Interesting. I was at the club fair for a different club, the outdoor club, but I had all these flyers for the show. Yeah. And I figured, you know, there's so many people walking around. Where are they looking? Maybe they're looking at their feet. So I started just dropping them on the ground. And that I must have been it. Maybe you saw them on the yeah. ground or something. But that's cool. The, the club fair was awesome. A lot of different clubs. That was at the beginning of the school year. Any other clubs stand out to you? Not really. Just tracks from abroad. That, that, that was the, the main yeah. one. All right. Well, now you're on the show. We are talking today about Venezuela. Let's give a little background about your ties to Venezuela. Yeah, for sure. So my mom's Venezuelan, my dad's Portuguese, but I was born there and lived until I was 15. Um, after that, I moved to Chile, mm-hmm. and now I'm here, obviously. But yeah, I mean, most of my like my family, childhood friends, um, my whole childhood was in, in Venezuela. So hmm. um, I remember my times back there very fondly, okay. even if I don't visit all that often. When was the last time you visited? So I actually visited last time about two months ago. Um, but before that, it had been five years. Mm-hmm. So literally since I left. And what was that trip like? Was it, uh, were you glad to be back or were there any changes that you had noticed that weren't there before? You know, it was actually quite bizarre. Okay, tell me. I, I found myself in a, in a different country. When, when I left, it was a, in a very poor situation, a lot of scarcity. There was barely any food. Like, you know, maybe you ever saw these headlines about like huge lines, very high prices. So I come back and I find this, this country that feels like almost like the U.S. in some ways. Like, I felt like I was in, I don't know, some part of Miami or something. I'm c- curious about the U.S. part, because I'm from the U.S., given I'm from Vermont, which is not very representative mm. of the U.S. Do you know where Vermont is? I don't know, the middle part it's, of the U.S.? No, not the middle. It's near Boston. It's near okay. Quebec, okay. Uh, okay. up there. All right. But um, in what way did it feel more like the U.S.? What do you mean? Well, in the first place, they only use U.S. dollars now. Okay, that's a good that's a good reason. Right. Huh. Um, why, do they, why do they do that? So their currency is worth so little Yeah. that... They just like slowly transition into U.S. dollars. Huh. Um, and like I said, it was very bizarre because, for example, they don't have one dollar bills or change. Okay. So you can only pay in like tens. So let's say you're buying something that's seven dollars. Sure. Well, you have to, you know, use a ten dollar bill and then you have to buy something else that covers for the other th- other three dollars. Really? Only in ten dollar bills? Yeah. Is that because it's hard to get one dollar bills? Yeah, precisely. Okay. Um, in fact, so I, I went there, right, and I took a bunch of $1 bills because they, yeah. they, to, they told me they were valuable. Yeah. Some people will, ex- <laughs> some people will exchange you, yeah. like, $5 yes. in $1 bills okay. and give you back a 10 because t- $1 bills are that really— That makes sense because they, they don't, that allows they don't them, them to not buy random things just to get to $10. Exactly. That is weird. Are there any other <laughs> examples of strange economic— um, You know, I went to, like, this downtown part of the city. Of the city. There were so many like sky skyscrapers, okay. completely empty. Who's building these here? They weren't there before. They were not there before. Huh. They hadn't even started building them. And historically in Venezuela, it takes a long time for constructions to finish. But you know, and within five years, they finished these like I don't know, sixty stories skyscrapers. Like, yeah. how did this happen? I don't know. That's really odd. I'm trying to imagine going back to my home, my home country, and my hometown, and seeing those kinds of changes. It would be very shocking. Your family is still living in the same place? Uh, mostly. I have some people in some friends, some family in the U.S., yeah. some in Argentina. But, yeah, mostly my grandparents, uh, close family. Yeah. Let's say, for example, what were your grandparents' reactions to these changes that now they're using U.S. dollars, among many other things? I think most people just think it's normal at this point. It was just very slow, obviously. Like, it's not like from one day that you switch to U.S. dollars. And because these changes are so slow, I think people just don't notice until you point it out. Hmm. Like, sometimes... You point it out to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of odd. But they will never notice it by themselves. 
We are here with Manuel, obviously, talking about Venezuela. This is going to be a really fun show. We're in the Map Room studio, and as always, on every single show, we have the student bring some music. Manuel, is there a song that we could start off the show with? Um, for sure. I think um, the song I brought, Mario Antonio, uh, it's a great song. It's actually a modern rethink and reimagining mm. of, a, of a classic song from like the early 20th century. Um, it's kind of like a rock uh, version. Mm. I think it's a great track. Um, from my childhood, actually. They used to play it all the time on the radio back home, so. Hell yeah. All right, we're going to play that song right here on Tracks from Abroad. Today, we are visiting Venezuela. Déjate de to- 
Celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 FM.
Hello and welcome back to Tracks from Abroad on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Jesse McDougall, sitting across from Manuel, and today we're talking about Venezuela. What is there a broad history you can give us about Venezuela? Okay, that's definitely a tough question. It but, is. You know, a I guess a short summary is um, we're a very rich country in oil. Okay. Uh, for most of the 20th century. There you go. Uh, there was so much money, the government would just pretty much just give it away. Uh, people were very rich. If someone was considered middle class, they were traveling, you know, all the time, visiting Europe, buying apartments. And then, you know, there was some, you know, very, very large social inequity. Uh, this populist candidate became president, Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez. Probably heard of him. His regime was socialist, yeah. uh, in essence. Started giving away a lot of money. Well, slowly the economy started deteriorating. And um, somehow he changed the constitution. Okay. To be able to be reelected, okay, which he did about four times, which I know sounds insane. Um, <laughs> stayed in power, I think, maybe like fifteen years yep. until he died. Okay, but by this point, the, the economy is in total ruins, hmm. right? And the people who were poor before are even poorer, and the people who were rich before aren't rich anymore. And so at this point, so many people started leaving the country. I don't think there's any official statistics on this because their government doesn't keep track of it. But the amount of people that had left the country is, like, insane. Like I told you, I used to live in Chile. Yeah. And there were so many Venezuelans there. Like, if you went to any restaurant, for example, most waiters were Venezuelan. So what happened is, um, or at least my understanding of it, is that basically since the government didn't ha- wasn't as rich anymore, mm-hmm. but they still kept pushing these socialist policies, such as subsidizing food mostly. That was a big deal, subsidizing food and oil. Um you could get things for like maybe a tenth of the price that should actually be. So this had ended up leading to a very long lines since there was a very limited amount of product and it was all subsidized by the government or or rather they were controlling it was, uh, they were controlling the prices. There was a, ma- a maximum price you could sell it for, not necessarily subsidizing. Hmm. Some essential food, like for example, we eat uh, some corn flour called harina pan. Uh, we make arepas from it. Maybe you've heard of arepas. Uh, it's a Colombian, Venezuelan food. Okay. We eat that every day and this became super scarce hmm. so long lines yeah aside from that socialism it's it's hard for me to tell because i don't think what exists in venezuela is socialism from what little knowledge i have of it but also socialism has gotten a really bad rep in south america like people get you know it's almost like a red scare type of thing yeah. people are very um careful even using the word yes um, it's very polarizing. Well, I got to say, for a difficult question, you know, encapsulating the last 100, 100 or 200 years, you did really well. But I am going to speak later on the show to a political science professor who worked for the Venezuelan government under Hugo Chavez. So we're going to get an insider look. I actually took courses from him last year. Well, let's stray away from politics and talk about Venezuelan music. We've already heard a little bit of the music. You are you made an awesome playlist of uh, not only Venezuelan artists, but some Venezuelan producers. I want to ask you, what is Venezuelan music all about? Venezuelan music, um, for the longest time, used to be very traditional. Um, the only music we produced was mainly folklore. Um, there's something we call Musica Llanera, which uh, is a big area of our country called like, the Plains, El Llano. Okay. And most of our music came from there. Mm-hmm. Um, however, most popular music actually didn't come from there. It was international. We had a lot of American music. Um, we took a lot of inspiration from rock. Uh, there was a big sky movement. Mm. However, more recently, we started seeing some like huge turns in the way we did music. Uh, perhaps taking a lot of influence from reggaeton, 
uh, which was what you know everyone was listening to in the early 2000s. Uh, artists like Daddy Yankee um, were dominating radio. Um, any party you would go to, you could you would hear it everywhere. Yeah, um, and that's how we have producers like Arca um, showing up. Arca is, I think, one of the greatest producers out there right now. I believe she started making music in the early 2010s in Venezuela um, and went completely ignored. No one even listened to what she was doing. Mm. And she somehow ended up producing uh, for Kanye's Yeezus, uh, which is quite insane. And after that, she she started making you know some music, some music for herself, even singing in some of her songs, and basically pioneered a genre we nowadays call neo perreo, mm-hmm. which is a mix of hyper pop if you've heard of that genre, and reggaeton. You know this whole new genre. So solely spawned of this producer with a lot of Latin influences, living in New York, yeah. working with artists from all over the place. If you've heard of Rosalia, yeah, I think she's one of the greatest artists out there right now. I'm so happy she's as popular as she is. She just came through Toronto. I know she did. I'm so sad I miss her concert. Oh, too bad, too bad. But I think what she's doing is great, and a lot of it is Latin music. Mm-hmm. All of that just spawns from my country. I feel. Yeah. Just so proud of it. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing all those musical ideas. We are going to take a music break. It seems like an appropriate time to get into some Venezuelan music. We're going to be back right here on Tracks from Abroad with Manuel. We are talking about Venezuela.
Tracks from Abroad with my man Jesse on CIUT 89.5 FM. Llegó el duro, Chuck Zulu, chon duro, el flow crudo, el black puro, tan puro, como el opal oscuro, no hay uno, ni el más crudo, sino el que más pudo, lanza muchas flechas, pero ninguna daña mi escudo, soy secudo, en la contienda los pongo en apuros, te lo juro, que chocan contra el muro, te aseguro, fracturo, cualquier instrumental cuando estructuro y capturo, toda esa energía que rompe el conjuro, perduro, en el tiempo y Tantos padecimientos que en tu mente crean pensamientos impuros Censuro las intenciones malas, vibraciones a las cuales les doy alas Sin gastar plomo en zamuro Está en tu kill, voy disparando el skill sin dudar Y poniendo en su lugar a tu estoquil Ya es normal que todos quieran un pedazo del pernil Pero cuidado que si te vas de confiado te puedes sacar del carril Está en tu kill, voy disparando el skill sin dudar Y poniendo en su lugar ya es normal que todos quieran un pedazo del pernil Pero cuidado que si te vas de confiado te puedes sacar del carril El mar de fuego eleva la lava y estoy al pie del volcán Edificando mi templo man, con sapiencia y sin afán Chilambalán, reparto mi pan, pero solo con aquellos que están Con los que son los más fieles del clan, con los que se quedan y no se van Probé la causa y vendré el efecto, ya vi tu gesto y no eres con esto No fuiste franco, rompiste el pacto, por eso es que te la pillo y soy facto A donde yo voy me siguen el pacto esos ratones quieren de mi queso, de municiones se quedan escasos Por eso es que siempre les salen ilesos Son radio bemba con esa lengua que tienen de alenga Nada más tan pendiente de los tipos En vez de ocuparse mejor de su hembra Son una decepción para mi hip hop Les falta más contenido a sus letras Yo lo que saco aquí son puro hip No tú en la base lo que hacen meter feca Eres pura mueca, a ti que aparentas Como quieres que te tomen en cuenta Cabeza cueca, si estamos claros que la mona Ya sabe el palo que trepa, así que tu senda Dale remember que a esto tú no le llegas Esto es rap de Quieran un pedazo del pernil Pero cuidado que si te vas de confiado Te puedes sacar del carril Y está en tu kill Voy disparando el skill Sin dudar y poniendo en su lugar a tu estoquil Ya es normal que todos quieran un pedazo del pernil Pero cuidado que si te vas de confiado Te puedes sacar del carril Está en tu kill Está en tu kill Welcome back to Tracks from Abroad. My name is Jesse McDougall. Today I'm in the Maproom studio at Hart House at UFT on the campus. We're talking with Manuel uh, about Venezuela. Manuel, I did take two courses in Latin American studies while I've been here at UFT. One thing I learned is the, of this figure, Simon Bolivar, um, but I gotta say, I feel as though I need a little refresher. Could you tell us about this person? Yeah, totally. So, Simon Bolivar was, um, he was a Spanish man born in Venezuela. And for one reason or another, he decided that we had to become independent from the Spanish regime. There were a lot of campaigns, a lot of fights. And by some way or another, he ended up liberating about all of South America. Mm -hmm. It's quite insane that someone from my country did that. Mm -hmm. You know, you have countries like Bolivia who are literally named after him. Right. Um, or I've been in Colombia and I know there's a whole department called Bolivar too. 
you know, he's a hugely influential person in South America. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we would be independent without him. Right. Perhaps we wouldn't. Perhaps we would be some sort of Spanish Commonwealth. As right? Canada is connected to the UK. Who exactly. Knows? You know, history could be very different. You know, I was playing Civilization the other day. <laughs> That's a good, yeah, interesting. Right? Have you, have you heard of that game? I've heard of it. Okay. And the other day, a new character recently, and it was him. Okay. And I was like, okay, I got to buy it just to play as him. You know, I had never seen that before. And... Some, some, some Venezuelan pr- pride. Sure. How would you describe it? You're sort of managing a whole country or a whole world? Yeah, you start with like a town and then... Is it kind of like the game Risk, the board game Risk, where you move armies and... Yeah, it's quite similar, yeah. I don't know. You have I, to like I, develop your, 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 your city, um, try to grow it out, and then win by either nuking everyone else or expanding your religion. Yeah, expanding your religion. <laughs> Maybe this is a game I should look into to get some, uh, some fodder for tracks from abroad. That's interesting, but Bolivar, clearly an important person. Are there any other important figures that stand out to you from Venezuela? I mean, when I think important figures, I think Leopoldo Lopez. Recent I've times. heard the name. What, what is that person? Yeah, so he's, a, so he's a Venezuelan guy. Went to my school, actually. Okay. He then ended up going to the U.S., studied abroad, international politics. Okay. Came back and then was one of the main people fighting against the Chavez regime. Uh, it didn't go well at all, though. He ended up in jail for several years. And then I think nowadays he's exiled in Spain. However, he was very important to us because there was a, a big period in time around 2014, I believe, 2014, 2016, that no one was standing up for um, what we thought was right, mm-hmm. which definitely wasn't the Maduro government. And so someone going actually out there uh, protesting. There were a lot of protests back then. And he put himself out there. And that led to him going to jail. Hmm. And that was a big deal. Obviously, everyone hoped that would lead to a change in some way or another, uh, which it didn't happen. But for the longest time, he was definitely the person I, I looked up the most from, from my country. Yeah. And speaking about that, would you ever consider going back to Venezuela to live short-term, long-term? What do you think? I think living there, it's very complicated now. Um, the quality of life is very low. I was I was there very recently, mm-hmm. about a month ago, and I was staying with my grandma, and then she would like wake me up in the mornings, saying, "Hey, the water's here, take a shower," and then I you know have to run to the shower, shower real quick before the water went out. Is there any hope that things will improve? Do you think that you might go back one day and you'll find it much better? You know, I definitely dream about one day coming back to Venezuela, helping make the country a better place. I think that would be the ideal situation. But in the short term, it seems very unlikely. All right. Well, Manuel, thank you very much for coming on the show. You and I probably both have to get to class <laughs> as we're recording in the middle of the day on uh, Monday today is. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, I'm sure you and I are going to keep talking off the mic about various things. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Thanks for having me.
cuando me negué a verlo A los ojos cuando él vino pidiendo hope you are enjoying today's show on Venezuela. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Jesse McDougall. This is my show, Tracks from Abroad. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Manuel. Manuel contacted me on tfa.radio. That's our Instagram page. He's a student at U of T and he saw one of my posters. But now it's time to introduce our second interviewee. This is Donald Kingsbury. He is a professor I've had at the University of Toronto in political science. And although he is an American like me, he has worked in the Venezuelan government. Not many can say that. Here is my interview with Don Kingsbury. This is Tracks from Abroad. Very excited today to be doing another country, one that we haven't done before. We are talking about Venezuela, and we have a very appropriate guest, someone who has been to Venezuela and someone who I've taken classes from as well. We're here in the office of Donald Kingsbury. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Absolutely. Now, a little background here. I took two of your courses last year. I've taken three in total. One of them was about... Uh, mining and extraction of natural resources by people like Peter Monk. And we are sitting in the Monk building here. Appropriately, yeah. Ironically yeah. and appropriately. Yeah. But the other courses were just broadly about Latin American history or Latin American politics, we'll say. Can you talk about those two classes? You're still teaching them? I am. I'm teaching um, uh, Political Science 305 right now, Introduction to Latin American Politics and Societies. And that's really just a class that tries to give a broad historical overview of the region from uh, the, the years immediately preceding European conquest up to the present, uh, which is a lot, <laughs> but uh, our goal is to, to give this broad kind of historical overview while introducing students to the kinds of concepts that social scientists have tried to use to identify patterns and uh, persistent traits in much of the region. Are you finding that students think this is topical, like they're coming to class with questions, they're looking at the news and applying it to what you're teaching? That's the goal. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, th there's always a, a contingent of students who come from Latin America um, who are interested in, in learning a bit more about um, sometimes their own country's history, but, but oftentimes just, you know, the, the region in general. Um, but then there's also students who, uh, you know, U of T students, they're, they're reading the news. They, they see about 
Argentina's financial situation right now, or they read about all the buzz around lithium in, in Chile, and, yeah. and they want to learn about the, the contexts. And so they are definitely you know, asking interesting, engaged questions. It makes my job a lot easier. You mentioned lithium. That's one of your primary interests. Can you give us a quick summary? You know, what brought you to look at lithium, of all things? Uh, well, actually, lithium, I, I got to lithium via oil, <laughs> via Venezuela. Uh, we'll talk more about Venezuela in a minute, but uh, while living and working there, I was struck by, by just how much everything, politics, society, economy, is just saturated by oil, pun intended. Yeah, that's a good word. yeah. Um, and it, it led me to look more at the relationship between resource extraction and political economy throughout the region. Um, like most of us, I think, I'm, I'm increasingly concerned um, by the, the deepening climate crises. And I'm, I'm equally concerned at just the the inadequacy of many of the plans to address the climate crisis, in particular this notion that uh, a Tesla in every driveway will somehow you know, stop us from cooking the planet. And that's where, that's where my interest in, in lithium comes really, is, is the ways in which the raw materials necessary for this consumerist path out of the climate crisis are impacting communities near where, where the, the, the minerals come out of the ground, whether that be in Argentina, Chile, or, or Bolivia, or, or Quebec. Or Quebec, yeah. 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 Now, one key aspect to this uh, that affected me recently that people may not realize, lithium doesn't last forever. Batteries don't last forever. But here's an example that's close to me. I use my computer every single day for more than half of what I do, whether it be school or, or this radio show. Um, I recently had to replace the battery in my computer after only three years of use. Um, the materials, the metals in all of that um, strikes me as a not a great thing. And if you're talking about a Tesla car replacing that whole thing, what have you heard about people, you know, getting a battery and then realizing this thing isn't going to last me? Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a major concern. And it's one that is heightened by the, the kind of turn towards, you know, planned obsolescence in, in yes. consumer electronics. The, the move within the lithium industry, and there's a couple of companies that are doing this here in Toronto, is there's, there's moves to develop what, what people call a, a circular economy that has a much heavier reliance for, uh, for material minerals like lithium, but also like cobalt and graphite, to get that via recycling. Um, and so the idea is, is that, and this is, this is the, <clears throat> I think, uh, maybe overly optimistic view or proposal, but the idea is that once we have enough stock in the world in terms of batteries and, and dead batteries, um, the minerals can be basically harvested from them and reused. Right? So you can, you can recycle lithium batteries. You can get the lithium out of the dead battery and, and use it in, in a new battery. And so the idea is once you have enough stock, then you can get to a point where you no longer need to mine. You can just perpetually, uh, you can perpetually recycle. I think there's a number of reasons why we're, we're looking for the market to lead this and the, the costs for the, the infrastructures necessary for those kinds of recycling plants um, can be prohibitive, um, especially when you have governments spending over backwards like Argentina's doing, like Quebec's doing to open uh, fields, to open, open the, the ground for, literally open the ground for, for cheap lithium mines. Let's get into Venezuela. I find it super interesting that you're an American, as am I, that you went to Mexico while you were in high school. Is that right? That was your first introduction? Uh, just uh, my first year of university. I had been, I'd been doing uh, Zapatista solidarity work since high school as just part of the, the punk rock scene. 
in uh, in Milwaukee, um, part of the like anti-racist politics and and, and uh, punk rock scene. And this this amounted to like you know throwing shows and and sending you know hundred dollars to Chiapas that sort of thing. Um, and then when I was a first year in university, I, I went to Chiapas, tried to volunteer and um, and wasn't able to for for reasons that are funny but not the point. Okay. <laughs> this is all a really long roundabout way of saying. By my second year of graduate school, I got a phone call from a friend who had recently moved to Caracas, Venezuela. And he asked me, uh, you know, hey, do you, do you want to come work for the Chavez government? You know, there's things you can do when you're, when you're 25 that you can't do any other time of your life. So I, I bought a one-way ticket and um, sold all my records and moved to Venezuela. On that note, I hope that is a bit of a teaser for our next conversation. We're going to take a music break here on Tracks from Abroad. We are talking to Donald Kingsbury, professor at the University of Toronto. We are going to get more into Venezuela, but right now, here's some music. CIUT 89.5 FM. We'll be right back. So I'll add the music in. Tracks from abroad. Tracks from abroad. Tracks from abroad. Tracks from abroad.
Welcome back to Tracks from Abroad. My name is Jesse McDougal. We are talking with Don Kingsbury, professor at U of T, one I have taken some courses with, into that story about moving to Venezuela, getting a one-way ticket, and beginning to work for the Chavez government. It was, I mean, it was, so this is 2006, 2007, and this is a moment that's, that's very, very, very different from today from uh, you know, anybody your age who's lived in Venezuela and, or anybody my age who's recently visited Venezuela, completely different context. Um, oil was, uh, Venezuela relies on oil for the vast, vast, vast majority of government revenues and, and has since the early 20th century. Oil was at a historic high. The power of the, the Chavez government, the government in power at the time, was really focused on two main goals. One was dealing with the, the poverty and social collapse it had inherited after structural adjustment in the 1990s, after economic reforms had just immiserated the population, but also in, in forging democratic practices, um, building local communal councils, uh, local, uh, they called the Misiones Bolivarianas, Bolivarian missions that uh, provided services like healthcare, education, uh, tree planting, uh, childcare, et cetera, et cetera. There's over 30 of them. Uh, to to give direct participatory links to the population to to not only receive you know handouts to address inequality poverty lack of access to education but to participate in how that how that played out so I had a job at the um, Venezuelan School of Planning which was a school founded by the the Ministry of Planning and Development um, and I was there teaching um, teaching English but also teaching like, political theory. And uh, working with young Venezuelans, people who were you know, a year younger than me, so 24, 25, you know, 27 years old in some cases, some of them were older than me, who had, who had been community organizers from all over the country. And so I'm, I'm, I, I was working with students who were like key community organizers from all over the country. I was also, while I was there, uh, volunteering in Misión Rivas, which was the basically high school equivalency program that was taught in, in people's homes. So twice a week, I would leave my job in, um, in the west of the city and take a subway and then a bus and then a, uh, like a whatever kind of truck or motorcycle I could hitch a ride on to go up one of the, the hills at Saran Caracas into a, an informal community called La Vega. And I would tutor uh, history, math, and English in people's um, living rooms. I want to know what those living rooms looked like. What was the difference between the more urban parts of Venezuela and then getting out into the countryside? In Venezuela, they call them ranchos, um, ranches. <laughs> but uh, like these are these are informal, precarious settlements. Um, these are where people, but they're they're often like two generations old, and you know, with each each stint of steady and lucrative employment. Um, people add something to the houses that they build by hand. Um, cinder blocks, tin roofs, um, but they're houses that people often don't have title to, that don't have formal um, government services, meaning that they don't have like legal electricity lines or legal sewage lines uh, and so forth. So all of these communities are really these kind of examples of self-help and community organizing that go back generations. They're constantly having to be on the lookout to protect themselves from the police, from property developers, and from malandros, but from thugs, from, from gangs. They pool resources together to build, for example, 
uh, stairways to make it easier to climb up the up the hill to get from one end to the other. They um, pool resources to gain access to potable water. Right, the the community will put money together and pay for a, a private company to come and deliver water once a week. And so I was I was fascinated by this this way in which you've got this sometimes two or three generation old informal community doing all of these daily politics that are that are just mind blowingly. Like it requires constant participation. And at the same time, you've got a government that for the first time for many of them says it supports these people, right? And is providing resources like, like a gringo like me to come and teach sure. high school. Um, also access to subsidized food, also access to um, other forms of education, jobs and so forth. And so I really became fascinated by this, this thing that you don't often see, which is a government um, really, really trying to help the poor. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, at this point in the show, one of my personal microphones that I brought to the interview died. So we had some other audio that I'm not going to be able to put onto this show. However, I do have to say very much thank you to Donald Kingsbury and to Manuel at the start of the show for coming on Tracks from Abroad and talking about Venezuela. We have one more track coming up here on the show. But what I really want to know is what did you think of the show? Did you like the political aspects to it? Or is there a certain country that you'd like us to cover? Just send us an email at tracksfromabroad at ciut.fm or find us on Instagram at tfa.radio. Here is one last song by the Venezuelan Canadian artist, Alina Cuevas. We will see you next week. Do corpo dourado, do sul de Ipanema O seu balançado é mais que um poema E a coisa mais linda que eu já vi passar Que quando ela passa o mundo inteirinho Se enche de graça e fica mais cedo por causa